This podcast is made possible by the generosity of supporting members. Please visit dharmaocean.org to learn more about becoming a supporting member. You are listening to the Dharma Ocean Podcast. Here, Reggie says that mind states are like rainbows, apparent but empty. True freedom is discovered when we stop trying to pin things down. To demonstrate this, Reggie offers an account of how it was impossible to pin his teacher, Chogyam Trumpa, down. This talk was given at the 2004 Winter Datun Retreat, held in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. To register for the upcoming Winter Datun Retreat, please visit the program calendar at dharmaocean.org. So, to continue what I was talking about yesterday morning, when we resist the temptation to pin things down in any way, the mind becomes a vast playground. And sometimes we experience moments of joy, followed by depression, followed by fear, followed by space, followed by joy, again, claustrophobia, freedom, and it actually plays through. In the space of a minute, you can go through a whole kaleidoscope of different states of mind. And of course, if we're trying to solidify things, we don't allow ourselves the room to see actually how our awareness is in and of itself. Sometimes we do become, we find ourselves in a particular river of uh, similar mind states, just spontaneously. But when that happens, then there's a feeling of emptiness, that there's really nothing happening. It's, it's almost like a rainbow, that we might be in um, a situation of passion. Um, we may be feeling uh, tenderness. We may be feeling devotion. And there is a continuity there of a certain kind of mind state that appears over and over and over. But even in that situation, it's like a rainbow. It's not really real and it's not really convincing. So it's apparent, but it's empty. So once again, there's no um, inclination to pin anything down. The mind is left open and free. And even mind states that seem to be solid from a conventional point of view, such as um, you're very, very tired, you didn't get any sleep, or perhaps you're sick. If you look into that, if you actually look into the experience itself, you find that it isn't anything. There isn't anything there that's solid. There are various moments that arise, and we put them together to um, construe the fact that I'm tired or I'm sick. 
But the fact is there's a lot of other things going on at the same time that are quite different. And there are periods of time when maybe you got um, very, very little sleep and all of a sudden you're fine. There's no problem. Everything's uh, open and um, there's no fatigue at all. And then other moments when there's a kind of heaviness and so on. Those are very interesting states because often in our conventional way of thinking, we think, well, I'm willing to let my mind um, be open in a lot of areas, but not when I'm tired. When I'm tired, I'm tired. And I'm just, that's, that's it. And it's real, and it's solid, and it's going to be going on all day. Well, that's just us once again trying to pin things down. Or when we're sick, same exact situation that we feel you know, I'm quite willing to, um, you know, realize that my depression or my uh, longing or whatever may be, um, you know, impermanent and there may be a lot of other things going on. But when I'm sick, I'm really sick. And get out of my face. You know, don't tell me that that's uh, also just a projection. Well, it is just a projection. And there's a lot of room within that feeling of being sick and a lot of things going on and a lot of opening and a lot of possibilities even of experiencing space and um, restfulness and freedom that um, wouldn't be coming along if we were in some other situation. Another very interesting one is being hungry because that's another um, apparently physical mind state that seems very solid and very real. And we feel, well, that's, that's based in my physiology. So, um, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like taking a look at that. I'm hungry and I want something to eat. But here at the Dhatun, it's interesting because if you didn't get enough breakfast or for some reason you're very hungry, you're sitting here and you kind of, you know, there's not that much you can do about it. I mean, you could get up and run out and run to the refrigerator. But generally speaking, most people sit here and, okay, it's 20 minutes to lunch, so... I'll sit with it, or lunch is late. You know, you're, you're in good shape, but then lunch is 20 minutes late, and you feel really, really hungry. Well, that's a very interesting opportunity to explore. You can kind of look into the hunger and see what's actually going on there, and whether there is anything that we could identify as hunger. We think we're hungry, but what is it that, we, that we're labeling as hunger? What is that? And there's a lot to find out there. When we don't when we resist the temptation to pin anything down at all, then we begin to feel real freedom. There's real freedom there. Often we focus on the negative side of it, which is that I want to pin things down, I need to pin things down, and when I can't pin things down, I have a lot of ego pain. That's usually how we approach it, understandably. But the other way to look at it is notice that when you can't pin things down, how much your mind opens up and how free you feel. You feel freedom. And what is freedom? Freedom, strangely enough, when we feel imprisoned, the feeling of imprisonment, which all of us feel in samsara, is actually because we pin things down. The feeling of claustrophobia, the feeling of um, limitation, the feeling of not enough room, the feeling of being in some kind of, you know, dark, dank cell, which is the experience of samsara, happens strictly and only because we try to pin things down. We actually are the creators of our own prison. 
moment by moment by moment. It's not our spouse, it's not our children, it's not our work, it's not even our emotional state. It isn't anything except that we pin things down. And then when we pin things down, our mind isn't, we don't allow ourselves the natural freedom and spontaneity of the mind, and then of course we feel imprisoned. So through sitting practice, we begin to see how much we're always trying to identify things and pin them down and come to conclusions. And it becomes more and more um, difficult to do that, frankly, because our experience comes forward and we just, not, we just don't go there as much. And over the, the experience of the path, that the one thing that happens is we stop kind of going there as a habitual pattern and we start to be much more um, compelled by experience itself. And when we do that, we feel tremendous freedom. And again, the interesting point with freedom is it's not freedom from anything. Freedom is not freedom from. Freedom is always freedom for. And in this case, the freedom for is the freedom for the totality of our experience. That there's room for us to experience everything that we are. And when we feel that, that totality and that room to be what we are and to experience everything in a completely full and uh, satisfying way, then we feel completely free. There's a sense of complete freedom. Somebody that walks away from a bad marriage is not free because there's freedom from. There's always that thing that you're running away from. That's not freedom. That's temporary relief. Freedom is all-inclusive. It must include everything that we are in all of our experience. And there's no moment when we feel more free than when we take a chance on ourselves, something comes up, something calls us, and we take a chance. At that moment, we leap toward ourselves, toward our experience, and at that moment we feel real freedom, boundless freedom. Freedom that is... Um, intense, passionate, fully involved, completely engaged, and at the same time free. I'm going to do a kinyin now, but um, before we do, I want to give you two little glimpses of Trungpa Rinpoche. One of them is that um, one time at Lake Louise in Canada, where we were having a seminary, Rinpoche and a friend of his, Shabbata Sensei, were going out for a walk by the lake, and it was still very wintry and icy. And the, his attendant um, asked Rinpoche if he wanted to have some sake before he went. And he said, no, but bring the bottle. <laughs> so they went out and Lloyd Lovelace, uh, who's the attendant, was right behind Rinpoche because Rinpoche was in his, because he was crippled, he had these special shoes and he just, that was it, those were his shoes. So he went out on this icy path down by the lake and um, Lloyd was very worried that Rinpoche might fall because it was, you know, very, very icy. And so he's right behind him and um, all of a sudden, Rinpoche's both feet started sliding. 
and Rinpoche fell over backward into Lloyd. And Sasha said that Lloyd felt as if he'd been hit by a cannon. And he fell back and basically blacked out for an instant. And when he came to, Rinpoche was standing over him, holding out his glass and saying, I'll have a drink now. And Lloyd looked down, and he was still holding the bottle, and it hadn't broken. <laughs> he said he'd never been hit by anything that hard in his whole life, and he had no idea what hit him. He never figured it out. And how Rinpoche was standing up, completely, completely impossible and mysterious. And then the... So that's Rinpoche, the magician, somewhat. And then the other one uh, is a um, more painful story. Rinpoche used to go up the, when he would come home, he'd go up the back stairs of his house. He lived on the second floor. And he did this thing where he would be going up, and his attendant, or kusung, would be right behind him, and he would just pitch over backwards. And the Kusung's job was to make sure that he or she was right there to catch him. And he used to do this all the time, just pitch over backwards. And one time, the Kusung, for whatever reason, was not paying attention. And Rinpoche went over backwards, and he catapulted down the stairs and hurt himself actually very badly. So you can say, well, what, what was going on? Um, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, his whole, his whole life was a kind of uh, riddle. And every moment of his life was a riddle. And it, it, you, it never explained anything particularly at all. And it was up to kind of you to see what you found in it. But he was always on the edge, always. And one thing I got out of it, which I'll just mention, it could be completely you know, beside the point, but I'll just mention it. I think he was um, always in a process of divination to see whether reality wanted him to live or die. There's another story that's similar to this one where, and it, and it actually took him a long time to recover from this uh, fall, Another similar story was uh, told by John Perks, who was his, you could say, his sort of head of household. And one time, Rinpoche was up on the roof of his house. He said to his cousin, let's go up on the roof, and I uh, want to go up on the roof. So they went up on the roof. And all of a sudden, Rinpoche started running toward the edge of the roof. And this was a three-story house. And the Kusung's question was, this is the guru. Do I let him do what he wants to do? If I do, he'll be killed. I'm going to intervene. And I don't know, you know, in those situations, your mind goes very, very fast. And so he tackled Rinpoche at the last instant, and Rinpoche fell down, and they both, there they were, lying on the roof of the house. <laughs>
And Rinpoche had another, you know, few years of life, whatever. But I tell you these stories just to, you know, let you know that if, if you think that uh, through practice we're learning to live on the edge, that's very true. And the person who brought this particular lineage here, more than anyone that I ever knew in my life, lived on the edge and always found, you know, for most of us in our practice, we let the edge find us. We practice and the edge actually comes and finds us. And we find ourselves living on the edge. But in his case, he actually, he went to find the edge always in every possible situation and put himself at utter and total risk constantly. And according to him, that's how you live. When you're willing to do that, then your life is full and abundant. And whether you live or die, it's um, of no concern. To download more of Reggie's teachings, find out about upcoming retreats, and to explore a variety of audio listening guides to assist you on your spiritual journey, please visit dharmaocean.org. Music is by Jeff Beale and Nawang Ketchog from the album Tibet Cry of the Snow Lion.